Blog Talk Radio. The B-I-B-L-E, that's the book for me. The B-I-B-L-E, that's the book for me.
sermon is by John MacArthur, pastor, author, and Bible teacher with Grace to You. If you've never contacted Grace to You, we want to send you a free book by John called Good News, the Gospel of Jesus Christ. It expounds on the central message of Christianity, that Jesus Christ lived and died to save sinners. Request your free book by writing to goodnews at gty.org. That's goodnews at gty.org. And this offer is good in North America and Europe through December 2020. And now, unleashing God's truth one verse at a time, here's grace to you, Bible teacher John MacArthur. Verse 6 and following of Romans 5, For while we were still helpless, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. That is an incredibly amazing statement. Christ died for the ungodly. Verse 10, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God. Christ died for the ungodly. We were reconciled to God while we were enemies. And then verse 8 says it, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Therein lies the uniqueness of the gospel. The uniqueness of the gospel is this. Salvation is offered, and salvation is possible only for the ungodly, and only for sinners, and only for enemies. It's a stunning statement that Christ died for the ungodly. With that in mind, I want you to see an illustration of this in Luke chapter 5. So let's go to Luke 5, and we'll be there for the rest of the afternoon. <laughs> we wish. I want to show you an illustration 
of how Christ died for sinners, how God redeems the ungodly. In Luke chapter 5, we come to verse 27. And we read, And after that, He, being the Lord Jesus, went out and noticed a tax collector named Levi, or Matthew, sitting in the tax booth. And he said to him, Follow me. And he left everything behind and got up and began to follow him. And Levi gave a big reception for him in his house. And there was a great crowd of tax collectors and other people who were reclining at the table with them. The Pharisees and their scribes began grumbling at his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with the tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered and said to them, It is not those who are well who need a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Verse 32 sums up the essence of what I read from Romans chapter 5. Salvation is offered by God only to sinners, only to self-confessed wicked people, not those who consider themselves good or good enough. And by the way, that reality is opposite every religion in the world because all religions offer salvation to those who are good. God only saves the self-confessed wretched and wicked. That is an utterly devastating truth that in itself exposes every satanic false religion. Again, all false religion offers salvation deceptively, but offers salvation to those who are good enough to receive it. The uniqueness of the Christian gospel starts with the fact that there's only one Savior, and that's Christ, and there's no salvation apart from Him, right? Listen to the Word of God. John 14, 6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by Me. Acts 4, 12, and there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. Or John 20, 31. These have been written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ and believing might have life in His name. Or 1 Corinthians 16, 22. If anyone does not love the Lord, he is to be cursed. Galatians 1.8, if anyone preaches any other gospel, he is to be cursed. Or 1 Timothy 2.5, for there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all. Or 1 John 2.1 and 2, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, and he himself is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only but also for those of the whole world. 
Well, 1 John 5.11, God has given us eternal life, and this life is in His Son. He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. And one text to add to those is in the 10th chapter of Romans. And you have to... You have to start at verse 9 to hear the singularity of salvation through the Lord Jesus Christ. If you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord, Romans 10.9, and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. That's the exclusivity of salvation based on faith in Christ, in His resurrection, confessing Him as Lord. For with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness. With the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. The Scripture says, whoever believes in Him will not be disappointed. There is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches for all who call upon Him. For whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on Him in whom they have not believed? How will they believe in Him whom they have not heard? How will they hear without a preacher? How will they preach unless they're sent? Just as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news of good things. However, they did not all heed the good news. For Isaiah said, Lord, who has believed our report? Then this, faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. There is no other Savior than Jesus Christ. Christianity is the only true faith. All the rest are lies. But the second distinctive, apart from the identity of Christ as the one Savior, is the fact that God only saves those who are unworthy of salvation. That is so counterintuitive. Salvation comes only through the Lord Jesus Christ by faith in Him and only to those who are unworthy of it. This last couple of weeks, there was a new survey of evangelicals done by LifeWay. Uh, this is another survey. They do them every year. And one of the questions on the survey, this is a survey of evangelicals, was true or false? God accepts the worship of all religions, including Christianity, Judaism, and Islam. That was the question. Fifty percent of the evangelicals said true. True. Is that true? Then whatever evangelicalism means, it doesn't mean what it should mean. In the Second Vatican Council back in 1960, there was a statement made and affirmed since then by the Roman Catholic Church. I'll, I'll give you words from the Pope who came out of the Second Vatican Council. This is the statement. The gospel teaches that those who live in accordance with the Beatitudes and who bear lovingly the sufferings of life will enter God's kingdom. End quote. So it's the good people. Peter Kreeft, Roman Catholic apologist, said this The heathen are saved if they live good lives and are sincere. I remember reading these words, I think everybody who loves Christ or knows Christ, whether they're conscious of it or not, 
whatever that means, whether they come from the Muslim world or the Buddhist world or the Christian world or the non-believing world, they're members of the body of Christ because they've been called by God. They may not even know the name of Jesus, but they know they need something. I think they're saved and are going to be with us in heaven. They need something. An apologist who defected after he started out a ministry as a, at least trying to make people convinced he believed in the Word of God, ended up his career by saying this, when we approach the man of a faith other than our own, it will be with a spirit of expectancy to find out how God has been speaking to him and what new understanding of grace and love from God we may discover from this encounter. Our first task in approaching another religion is to take off our shoes because the place we are approaching is holy. We may forget that God was there before our arrival. And then he closed that paragraph with this, God has more going on by way of redemption than what happened in first century Palestine. Raymond Panneker wrote a book called The Unknown Christ of Hinduism. He said, the good and bona fide Hindu is saved by Christ and not by Hinduism. But it is through the sacrament of Hinduism, through the message of morality and the good life, that Christ saves the Hindu. Bizarre, completely deceptive statements. But the idea of all religions is that God, whoever they conceive Him to be, will save the good people, right? The moral people, the devout people, the religious people. This is the most widespread lie of Satan on the planet. That salvation comes to good people. Whatever religion. That is Satan's lie. It isn't even true for Judaism. At its most devout level, Judaism does not save. Not the Judaism that we find characteristic of the scribes and Pharisees. In Matthew chapter 23, Jesus looked at the scribes and Pharisees and said, You're hypocrites. You shut off the kingdom of heaven from people. You don't enter in yourselves, nor do you allow any others to enter in. Woe to you hypocrites. He says it over and over. Woe to you blind guides, fools, blind men. He says blind men again. Woe to you hypocrites, blind guides, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, over and over and over and over. And then he closes his diatribe, you serpents, you brood of vipers, how will you escape the sentence of hell? They were the most religious Jews. And they were on the way to hell, and they were producing other sons of hell. That is always the lie of false religion that God lets into heaven the good people. 
That is not what Jesus said. Go back to the text of Luke chapter 5. I have not come to call the righteous, the good people, but sinners to repentance. This has always been the good news. The salvation is not for the people who are good. And the reason is because no one is what? Good. There's none righteous. No, not one. Romans 3. There's none who understands. There's none who seeks after God. They're all gone astray. Salvation is not for those who imagine that they're worthy of it, who imagine they are righteous or pretend to be. Salvation is for wicked people. And in Luke chapter 5, I read you a marvelous illustration of that, the shocking unforgettable story of Levi or Matthew. Now let's go back to the text of Luke 5 as the account begins. We are walking away with Jesus as we pick it up in verse 27 where I read, from a house in Capernaum where He had healed a man who was a paralytic and forgiven his sins. Now Jesus is walking with His friends along the lake shore, and He's followed by a huge crowd that dogged His steps in fascination and wonder. We know that from Mark's parallel passage. So it is on the way by the lake of Galilee that the Lord has His next divine appointment. He meets a sinner. In fact, he meets a sinner who would be regarded as the worst of all sinners, the worst possible kind of sinner. His name is Levi. So let's pick up the story. After that, he went out and noticed a tax collector named Levi sitting in the tax booth. And we need to stop there for a moment. Sometimes in the uh, translation of the New Testament, the word is not tax collector, it might be Publican, you've seen that word. Publican. What is, what is so bad about being a tax collector? Please don't respond. I know there's... <laughs> I'm thinking biblically rather than the current IRS. Matthew calls himself Matthew. Mark, who gives you a parallel account, uses Levi. That's not unusual. Many, like today, had two names. Other apostles, Simon, Peter, Bartholomew, Nathaniel, Thomas, Didymus. Matthew means gift of Jehovah, so if he had a choice, Matthew would use that name, and he did. And by the way, Matthew humbly refers to himself only two times in his gospel. Only two times. Once in telling this story, and the other time in giving a list of the apostles. Matthew was extremely humble. He doesn't say anything in the gospel narratives. He wrote the gospel of Matthew, but prior to that, he didn't say anything that's recorded. He was a tax gatherer. Now, in the view of the Jews, the tax gatherers were the sons of hell. There were lots of reasons why. If you go to the 15th chapter of Luke and look at the opening, now all the tax collectors, all of them, and the sinners were coming near 
Jesus to listen to Him. But the Pharisees and the scribes began to grumble, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So it very likely began with the call of Matthew. Now, John the Baptist had attracted some interest from tax collectors and sinners. But this is Jesus. And He comes to this man named Levi or Matthew and says, follow me. I want you to be one of my followers. Now, this poses the question, who will the Lord save? Who will the Lord save? The scribes and the Pharisees were the ones who thought themselves to be religious and thought themselves to be the representatives of God. And you heard what Jesus called them, sons of hell, hypocrites, blind leaders of the blind, snakes. So here is one that they would have deemed the real sinner, the worst of sinners. And I'll tell you why. Rome occupied the land of Israel. Rome had conquered Israel and uh, taken over. There were Roman soldiers everywhere. There was Pilate, whom the Jews hated and tried to blackmail on numerous occasions. There was Herod the Idumean, who was a petty king, who also ruled over the Jews. He was a non-Jew. They hated this because they basically hated the Gentiles. When a Jew went out of the land of Israel into a Gentile area, when coming back across the border into Israel, he would shake the dust off his feet so he didn't drag any Gentile dust back into the Holy Land. The Romans exacted taxes from the people they conquered, and they basically ruled the world during the time of the New Testament. They sold tax franchises to Jewish traders, traders to their people who would then be paid by Rome to take taxes from the people. The year would come to an end, the tax gatherer would pay the government, and whatever the tax gatherer gotten over that was his take. There were fixed taxes that the Romans set. There were poll taxes, just the kinds of taxes that you paid when you went out and back into the country bringing something out or something in like a duty on some kind of import or export. Um, there were various land taxes and grain taxes and other products that were taxed by the Romans. But the Romans set a figure for the annual pay that the tax collector had to give the Roman government. Whatever you could get over that, you kept. The people hated paying taxes to Rome. And so in order to get the taxes out of the people, you had to have a bunch of thugs around you to make sure that if they didn't pay their taxes, you broke their legs or whatever else. The Jews who took these Roman tax franchises were guilty of larceny and extortion and exploitation. They could basically stop people anytime, anywhere, and put a tax on whatever they had in their hands, arbitrarily tax them. They were surrounded by enforcers and the rest of the riffraff of society, all the people who were unsynagogued, who couldn't go to the synagogue. The Jews who did this were the most hated of all Jews. Matthew Levi was such a wretched traitor. 
He extorted. He took bribes from rich Romans. He abused his own people. He served the pagan, idol-worshiping Gentiles. And of course, the Jews believed that only one God was the true God and all idols were blasphemous. And so here you have a Jew making money by serving idolaters and taking the money from the worshipers of the true God. As I said, they were barred from the synagogues. They were actually identified with unclean animals. Such stigma was applied to them. They were not allowed to testify in court. They were classed with prostitutes and robbers, and that's why you see sometimes tax gatherers and the collective word sinners, or tax gatherers and prostitutes. All the riffraff, all the outcasts, hung around together with the tax collectors. There was a general kind of tax collector. There were two kinds, and this is a fascinating history. The general one was called a gabai, which was G-A-B-B-A-I, a word that basically identified somebody who collected the regular taxes, the ground tax, the income tax, the poll tax, import-export tax, and then beyond that could extort anything he wanted. We meet one of those in the 19th chapter of Luke. His name is Zacchaeus. And he basically extorted money from people and became extremely wealthy. We'll look at him in a moment. But there was another kind of tax collector than a goodbye called a mocus. This was particularly for everything that was bought and sold. Every road, every bridge, every harbor the duties in all the towns. And then they invented taxes on animals, pulling carts, and on the number of axles, the number of wheels, the number of pack animals, the number of packs, the number of pedestrians, the roads, the markets, the ships, the packages. They taxed letters that were carried back and forth. It was the mochas who were the, the criminals, perhaps the worst of the criminals among the tax collectors. By the way, they were so bad that the Talmud allowed the Jews to lie to them, to protect themselves. They would say a goodbye could never be forgiven. A mochus could never, ever receive favor from God because they were attached to blasphemous Gentile idolaters. In the 18th chapter of Luke, you have this wonderful story where Jesus says there were two men, verse 10, who went into the temple to pray. One was a Pharisee and the other was a tax collector. Here's the perfect illustration. The Pharisee stood and was praying to himself, and that's what legalists do. They don't talk to God. They just talk to themselves because they are God. The Pharisee stood and was praying this to himself, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. When you've gone below swindlers, unjust, and adulterers, you get to the bottom, and that's the tax collector. Proudly 
praying to himself. The Pharisee says, I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing some distance away, was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven, but was beating his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. So who's God going to save? I tell you this, said Jesus, verse 14, this man went to his house justified rather than the other. Who received salvation? The Pharisee? No, the sinner. Because God came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Levi would be called by the title a little mocus. These were the worst. The big mocus would have a lot of little mocus people working for him at various tax offices. The little guy was the guy who sat and actually took the money. So he was the most hated person in Capernaum and in Galilee and everywhere in Israel. Jesus noticed him, this little mocus, sitting in his tax booth, extorting money, he noticed him. He said to him, follow me. That is an explicit command. Follow me. Why would he call him to be one of his disciples? This is scum. This is the worst of the worst. Jesus knew Matthew's heart. Nobody needed to tell Jesus what was in a man's heart. He knew what was in the heart. It says it in John 2. Jesus lived around the area of Capernaum in Galilee. Matthew worked there. And Jesus, when he saw him, wasn't just familiar with who he was. Maybe he was, maybe he wasn't, but he could read his heart. And what he saw was a broken heart, a penitent heart, and a heart of faith. Jesus knew that Matthew had been exposed to his ministry in that area. And that Matthew not only recognized who he was, but that Matthew recognized his own wretchedness. And it wasn't just the social stigma of being a tax collector. It was the deeper wretchedness before God, the hopelessness of the one that I just read you about who pounds on his chest and said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And it says in verse 28, he left everything behind and got up and began to follow him. This is um, the end of his career. And uh, he steps into following Jesus and can't ever go back. Can't ever go back. Because somebody else will snap up his tax franchise very fast. Very different than the fishermen who were called. They could always go back to fishing. But Matthew could never go back. The obedience of Matthew to the call of Christ was a greater act of faith and devotion than those fishermen. They could go back, and they did go back. Or at least they tried to go back, but the Lord rerouted the fish. <laughs> so they couldn't catch them. But for Matthew, there was no return. Listen, this is transformation. We, we don't hear the story of Matthew's faith. We don't hear the story of Matthew's penitent heart. But we don't need to. 
Jesus said, follow me. And he left everything behind and got up and began to follow him. He became a follower of Jesus, the most wretched sinner in the eyes of that society. This is real transformation. He turned his back on everything. Decisive break. Regenerated. New mind, new will, new heart. He hadn't sought out Jesus like the paralytic had in the previous incident, but Jesus knew his heart was broken, he was penitent, and he was forgiven by the Lord. Something that the perverted apostate system of Judaism would never have offered to a tax collector. When Jesus called him, his response is immediate. Matthew Levi, traitor, extortioner, robber, outcast, crime boss, became the apostle and the evangelist of Jesus Christ who wrote the first gospel. He must have been absolutely speechless. He lost a temporal career in what was deemed unjust and unrighteous crime. He gained an eternal destiny. He lost material possessions. He gained a spiritual future. He lost earthly security. He gained heavenly inheritance. He lost sinful companions and gained the Holy Son of God. He understands that Jesus came to save sinners. He doesn't say anything here, and it's probably because he was speechless. Now, how do we know this really happened? Because verse 31 and 32 is the commentary on what had just happened. And Jesus answered and said to them, It is not those who are well who need a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous but sinners to repentance. Here was one who was sick and knew he was sick, here was one who was a sinner who desired to repent. And the commentary in those two verses indicates what happened in his soul. Levi's response was joy. Verse 29, Levi gave a big reception for Jesus in his house. And there was a great crowd of tax collectors and other fill-in-the-blank scum who were reclining at the table with them. With the joy of his salvation, lighting a fire in his heart, Matthew's desire was to do what? Immediately tell everybody he knew. It was a pretty bad crowd. The joy of his conversion, his desire was to introduce everyone to the Savior. And he knew that if the Savior would save him, he could save them. A big reception. A big reception, that means he had a big house. That means he was good at extorting money. Lavish banquet. And he spent his money in honor of Jesus Christ and he did this to bring all of his sinful friends into the place where Jesus could influence them. So all the little mochas and the big mochas and the goodbye 
and all the unholy scum around Galilee showed up. They were sinners, and they're called other by Luke. Thieves and thugs and enforcers and drunks and prostitutes, the riffraff of society. Imagine they are personally dining with the Son of God. If you know anything about the ancient Middle East, when you sat down and reclined at dinner with someone, that was an evening of fellowship. And in doing that very thing, you affirmed your friendship. Jesus was affirming His friendship with them. It says they were reclining at the table together. Jesus with them. That is why Jesus became hatefully labeled, Matthew eleven nineteen, as the friend of tax gatherers and sinners. And as I say, it may have started right here with this evangelistic farewell dinner as Matthew was leaving his old life behind. For a moment, turn to Luke 18. And I want to remind you of this. I just read it to you. Verse 14. It was the tax collector beating his breast and saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner who went home justified, not the Pharisee. That takes you into chapter 19 and this incredible story of Zacchaeus. Jesus entered Jericho, was passing through. There was a man called by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and he was rich. Zacchaeus was trying to see who Jesus was and was unable because of the crowd, for he was small in stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree in order to see him, for he was about to pass through that way. When Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for today I must stay at your house. I mean, this is absolutely outrageous behavior. Outrageous. He's going to go and recline at a meal with a tax collector who is filthy rich because he's extorted money from people in the service of blaspheming idolatrous Rome. Well, he hurried and came down and received him gladly. And when they saw it, they all began to grumble. Oh, he's gone to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. Zacchaeus stopped and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, half of my possessions I'll give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I will give back four times as much. Well, I can tell you he had if he was going to be able to give back four times as much. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house. For he too is the son of Abraham. And then this wonderful statement, For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was what? Lost. I mean, you could boil down the whole hostility of Jesus' life to his attitude toward the wretched people. That's why they hated him. That's why they killed him. Because he called the righteous people white-washed tombs. And he was at home with sinners. Do you understand this is what makes Christianity distinct? Every other religion in the world promises a relationship to God to the good people. That is Satan's most ubiquitous lie. 
Jesus promises salvation and gives it only to those who are self-confessed, wretched sinners. In 1 Timothy 1, you have this remarkable testimony by Paul. Verse 12. I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who has strengthened me because He considered me faithful, putting me into service. Even though I was formerly a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent aggressor, yet I was shown mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was more than abundant with the faith and love which are found in Christ Jesus. It is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners among whom I am what? Chief. Do you see how distinct this is from religion? Now back to Luke 5. So, Pharisees are furious. Verse 30, the scribes began grumbling, complaining. Uh, it's actually an onomatopoeic word. Gongudzo. Sounds like it means. And so they went to His disciples. And they said in verse 30, Why do you eat and drink with the tax collectors and sinners? They never got over the fact that He condemned them and they were the most religious. And He provided salvation and fellowship for those who were the most wretched. They had morality, but they didn't have holiness. They were concerned with externals they were concerned with what people could see. They were moral, but they didn't know what holy was. When they pushed their morality on people, they were making them, listen, sons of hell, not sons of heaven. Jesus was making bad people holy. The Pharisees were making bad people worse. This is a stinging rebuke. Jesus answers, and said to them, It is not those who are well who need a physician, but those who are sick. Very simple, obvious analogy. It is not those who are well or think they're well, those who are sick, who need a physician. All through his ministry, this conflict raged and raged and raged. Their enemies, the Pharisees and scribes thought, had to be God's enemies. So Jesus, since He was part of the riffraff, He had to be an enemy of God as well. He had to be the devil's agent. Oh, what He was doing, they said, was done by the power of Satan. They were the righteous, and Jesus and His low-life friends were the wicked, and it was so obvious that they needed to kill Jesus for God's sake. 
because the righteous work would be to kill this man who was such a lover of low-life sinners. And again, I just point out to you that this is the uniqueness of the gospel. He came to save the lost. came to save those who were self-confessed sinners. The Pharisees, religious people, any of them, they're into self-righteousness, proud of their religiosity into um, external ritual, sacrament, ceremony, holding tightly to tradition, loving the approval of men, really good at carrying out ritual, making a show in the flesh. But the story really can't end there because this leads to really a fascinating response. Go back to verse 33. They said to him, The disciples of John often fast and offer prayers. The disciples of the Pharisees also do the same. But yours eat and drink. What's wrong with you people? You are having a party. Don't you get it? We we, we fast. Like the guy in the 18th chapter, right? I fast, I tithe. We fast. What's wrong with you? You don't get it. Religion is about fasting and it's about praying. It's, It's about all those duties. And all you do is eat and drink. You're, you're having a party. Don't you know that religion is very severe, very serious, very demanding? There must be some self-sacrifice. Jesus responded this way, You cannot make the attendance of the bridegroom fast while the bridegroom is with him, can you? What a simple, profound answer. You you don't fast at a wedding, do you? This is is really a, a parable he's telling them. He's saying to them, again in verse 36, a parable, an illustration. No one tears a piece of cloth from a new garment and puts it in an old garment. Otherwise, he will both tear the new and the piece from the new will not match the old. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the new wine will burst the skins and it will be spilled out and the skins will be ruined. But new wine must be put into fresh wineskins. What is he talking about? They're saying to the disciples of Jesus, look, look, look. You you have to to fast. You, You have to pray. You can't let go of these standards. You you have to hold on to this. They would, I suppose, say, okay, maybe we grant you that there's an element of grace in salvation, but, but but it has to be partnered up with law. You have to do these things. And Jesus says, first of all, 
This is a time for celebration because though you don't know it, the bridegroom is here. The Son of God is here, analogically speaking. And then He gives a death blow to any compatibility between salvation God's way and salvation any other way. It's just a powerful, powerful couplet of illustrations. No one tears a piece of cloth from a new garment, puts it on an old garment, otherwise he will both tear the new and the piece from the new will not match the old. Simply, you can't stitch the gospel of grace into old Judaism. You can't make the gospel a patch in a works system. Jesus did not come to merge Judaism with Christianity. He did not come to patch the old system. Jesus is saying this is completely separate from the apostate Judaism of that time, which continues even into this time. The gospel of repentance and the gospel of grace to self-confessed sinners cannot be mixed with any religion of ritual or good works. The old garment here is the Judaism of that age. Here is gospel uniqueness. Grace cannot be merged with law. It's new. And then he gives that second illustration about putting new wine in old wineskins. And all that will do will be burst the wineskins and the new wine will spill. He uses the word new in that little section seven times. Seven times. You can't merge the new into the old. No mixture of the gospel and any works religion is possible since all works systems are from hell. Uh, he says, it's hard for you to take that. And he says that in the language of verse 39. You've been drinking the old wine so long, you're not wishing for new. You say the old is good enough. They clung to their Judaism. The gospel of grace stands alone. In Galatians 5.4, we read, For you have been severed from Christ, you who are seeking to be justified by law. You have fallen from grace. Did you get that? The Christian gospel stands alone, uniquely. The way of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone is incompatible with any other religious system. Faith and faith alone. But it's hard for people to give up their religion, isn't it? Because it's very hard to give up your self-righteousness. That's what verse 39 means. You've been drinking the old wine of self-righteousness so long, you don't have any appetite for the new. You say, well, the, the old has been good enough, and we think it's still good enough. And what happened? The Pharisees and the leaders of Israel looked at Jesus and said, we don't want your new wine. We don't want your gospel of grace. 
we want our self-righteousness. And they killed him to stop him from preaching that message. Christianity is not compatible with any other religion. And all other Gospels are false and damning. If 50% of evangelicals think God accepts worship from Judaism and Islam, that will tell you whatever evangelicalism is, it doesn't even know the truth of the Gospel. And I say to you, dear friend, there's no salvation in religion. There's only salvation when you realize you're not worth saving. And it's all an act of mercy. When you come to the end of yourself and you beat on your own chest and say, God, be merciful to me, a sinner, and save me. When you cry out for grace, when you come with nothing in your hand, They, they loved their Judaism. Oh, they loved their old traditional wine. They cultivated a taste for it. And the taste had taken over. They loved it. They loved their, their religion because it was self-satisfying to think that they could achieve a relationship to God. That is the devil's lie. The only people reconciled to God are those who are self-confessed sinners, who in desperation cry out to Him, Save me. Be gracious to me, O God. Save me. I cannot save myself. The Judaism of Jesus' time was very satisfying stuff. False religion always is, right? It's all over the world. Very satisfying. How sad. How sad. Perhaps... Some words recorded by Matthew would be a good place to close. Teaching of Jesus in chapter 13. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure, verse 44. The kingdom of heaven, salvation, is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and hid again. And from joy over it, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking fine pearls. And upon finding one pearl of great price, he went and sold all that he had and bought it. These two parables are so simple and yet so profound. If you want true salvation, if you want to be part of the kingdom of heaven, you have to sell all your old self-righteous religion. You have to become a poor prisoner, blind and oppressed. You have to have a beatitude attitude that you're spiritually bankrupt. You're poor. You're empty. You're hungering and thirsting for what you know you don't have. I've shown you, as you probably have been shown a number of times, that the treasure is Christ and salvation. The pearl is Christ and salvation. 
and it will be given to those who let go of everything else. Again, borrowing those words of Paul, if you hold on to any works, you've nullified grace. And so I call on you to let go of any supposed sense of your goodness, your righteousness, and realize that your righteousness in God's eyes is filthy rags. But that's exactly where you need to be because that's when you can receive the salvation He offers only to sinners. Our Father, we thank You for the truth of Your precious Word. There's really no mistaking its realities. Thank You for opening our hearts and minds to understand it so that it is that which we most love. We love You. We love Your truth. We love Your people. We love Your church. We love because You first loved us. You loved us when we were unlovely. You made us sons when we were enemies. You granted us the righteousness of Christ imputed to us by faith when we were wretched sinners. And it was all of grace. It always is grace upon grace upon grace. So that we are what we are by Your grace. We have nothing to boast of. No one's salvation is the result of any moral achievement, any religious ritual, any human goodness. The best of that all rolled together is filthy rags. And so we thank You that one day You noticed us like You noticed Levi and You saw our hearts broken over sin and longing for forgiveness, and You said, follow Me. And we left everything. We sold everything to buy the pearl, to buy the treasure, the priceless treasure of eternal salvation. And now we will, through all of our lives and even through eternity, Praise and glorify You for such abounding grace. And Lord, I would ask that You would save sinners even this day, even now, that You would notice them. And You would see the penitent heart, the broken heart, and You would bring redemption to that heart. And that You would cover that sinner with Your righteousness. We thank You that we have had the very righteousness that You possess imputed to us, credited to us by grace through faith in Christ. That it's His righteousness that covers us. And that's why we are here worshiping You out of gratitude. And we're seeing that not only have we had Your righteousness imputed to us, credited to our account 
as if we were righteous, but you are gradually making us more righteous as you sanctify us and move us into the image of your dear Son. Thank you for these precious people. Accomplish your great work in every heart. And we'll thank you in the Savior's name. Amen. You've been listening to John MacArthur, Bible teacher with Grace to You. For free access to all of John's lessons and a listing of study Bibles and books available for sale, visit Grace to You's website at gty.org. And for details about the Masters University, where John serves as Chancellor, go to masters.edu. John MacArthur and Grace to You reserve all copyright protection under applicable law. Our copyright policy is available at gty.org, and it includes instructions for and limitations on duplicating this digital file.
a sixth sense. This is Ken Ham on a mission to strengthen the global church with God's Word. We experience the world with our five senses, hearing, tasting, touching, smelling, and seeing. But God has given other creatures additional senses. One of those is mechanoreception. Let's look at the special sense in spiders that spin webs. They have small grooves in their joints that can change shape. A tiny movement in their web causes the slit to change and mechanoreceptors detect it. It's so precise the spider knows if the movement was caused by the wind or it's dinner. And if it's dinner, the spider can tell the size and weight of the coming feast. You know, God's design is incredible. Even in a world broken by sin, His handiwork is clearly seen. There's so much more to discover about the Bible and creation when you visit our website at AnswersRadio.com. Find encouragement and be challenged by visiting AnswersRadio.com. All right, here we go, kids, gather round. A brand new sound to praise the one who has the crown. In today's lesson, we'll talk about the Holy Bible, the most important book we all need for survival. The Bible is God's message for this world. It's for every man and woman, every boy and girl. And that message is that if we turn to Christ and place our trust in Him, we'll have eternal life. Now when we're at church, yeah, it's fun, it's cool. When we hear a lot of stories in Sunday school, like Jacob and Noah, Moses and Daniel, David and Jonah, Joseph and Samuel, but all the little stories tell one big story about the God who made all things for his glory. So as we read the Bible, it's important that we see this. There's only one hero and his name is Jesus. Should we begin when God made the whole wide world just by speaking? By his great might, he said, let there be light. The light he called day and the dark he called night. He made the earth and the seas, the dirt and the seeds, the herds and the trees, the birds and the bees. But the big surprise God had up his sleeve. On day number six, created Adam and Eve, made in the image of the beautiful Most High. God told them, be fruitful and multiply. Everything's yours, but that tree do not try. Because in the day you eat it, you're surely going to die. I'm sure you know the rest. Yes, they failed the test. And ever since then, the world has been a big mess. So as we read the Bible, it's important that we see this. There's only one hero, and his name is Jesus. When we read God's word today, the greatest saints have their flaws on full display. And it was written down for us in order that we may recognize that Christ is the only way. Adam ate forbidden fruit and lost his life. Abraham got scared and lied about his wife. Sarah laughed to herself when she heard God's promise. Rebecca encouraged her son to be dishonest. Aaron used craft to make a golden calf. Moses got mad, struck the rock with a staff. David sinned greatly, even lost his baby. And Jacob, he was just all around shady. The point is not to make light of our flaws, but to show that every one of us needs the cross. So as we read the Bible, it's important that we see this. There's only one hero, and his name is Jesus. Adam wasn't 
This didn't evolve. This is Ken Ham, heading up the ministry that's built a 510-foot-long Noah's Ark. You've heard the phrase, blind as a bat, but why not deaf as a bat? After all, bats send out very loud, high-frequency sounds in order to fly and hunt in the dark. Shouldn't they go deaf? Well, the God who designed the incredible process of echolocation thought of that. He gave bats the ability to choose which sounds their ears pick up. When a bat produces a sound, its middle ear muscles either close off its ears or adjust them. This way, they only pick up a certain frequency. Then, when the now safe sound waves bounce back towards it, the bat listens to know what's ahead. This process couldn't have evolved. It was clearly designed by God. Plan your visit to the Noah's Ark attraction in northern Kentucky when you go to AnswersRadio.com and listen to this program again or view a transcript at AnswersRadio.com. What is prayer? Prayer is offering up our desires to God for things agreeable to His will.
Finding a way home. This is Ken Ham, CEO of Answers in Genesis, the Creation Museum, and the Ark Encounter. Homing pigeons are renowned for finding their way home from wherever they're released, no matter how far away. So how do they do this? Well, scientists aren't really sure, but there are a few clues. It's believed pigeons use Earth's magnetic field to navigate. The skin that lines their upper beak has magnetic particles attached to nerves, and this allows pigeons to create a complex three-dimensional map. This likely allows them to detect slight changes to the angle of the magnetic field. This may get them home. So how did this complex process, one we don't even fully understand, come about? Well, it certainly didn't evolve. It has the fingerprints of the Creator. There's so much more to discover about creation and the God who created it. Visit our website at AnswersRadio.com to learn more. You'll be encouraged at AnswersRadio.com. Go. No. 
Have you ever flown over the open ocean and wondered, with so much water, how does a creature find anything to eat? Well, when a fish moves, its brain sends out a tiny nerve impulse. It tells the muscles to contract. Those impulses create an electric field, and many sea creatures can detect these fields because of special pores. They can even tell which direction it came from. In sharks, their electroreception, as it's called, is so sensitive, they can detect an electrical field weaker than the one produced by a mere wristwatch. This ability didn't slowly develop over millions of years. It was created by God, allowing creatures to survive in a fallen world. Try a month of our Answers Bible curriculum for Sunday School for free at AnswersRadio.com and discover more fascinating radio programs like this one at AnswersRadio.com. Writing this to you, I really hope you hear my heart When thinking about describing you, I really don't know where to start Can't start at the beginning, cause you are before the beginning Way before the beginning, and this fallen world's distorted opinions It was just the holy trinity, ruling from infinity Glory blazed tremendously, loving one another endlessly Billions and billions of years ago, outside of what we know as time Nobody else was there to know, but Lord, here's the thing that blows my mind As long ago as that was Long ago as that was, you have not changed, Lord, oh Lord, 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 as long ago, as long ago, as long ago as that was, you're still the same, you have not changed, what can that mean, but my God is immutable, immutable. 
other day How you reign supreme by far Not just because of what you do But simply because of who you are There's none like you in existence You are God and you need no assistance Even though we show you resistance You sent Jesus to close the distance That existed between God and man According to your sovereign plan We changed many times in one lifespan I changed even since this song began Lord, I'm so glad that you're not like us All that you do will certainly last You are the rock that we can trust Shows us back in eternity past As long ago as that was as long ago as that was, you have not changed, Lord. Oh, Lord, Lord, Lord. As long ago, as long ago, as long ago as that was, you're still the same. You have not changed. What can that mean? But my God is immutable. Immutable, you are beautiful. You never change, you remain the About my ups and downs, all of my inconsistencies, all of my idiosyncrasies. Still, you pursue relentlessly. At times, I wonder how this can be. Surely, it's because of the cross. When Jesus paid the full penalty and bore the burden of sin's great cost. I'm saved by grace and faith in God. I look to Christ and I trust He died. So, even though I'm being sanctified, I can't be any more justified. His work is finished, that cannot change. And with this knowledge, I am free. Forever, this grace, it will remain because of what happened on Calvary. As long ago as that was. Long ago as that was, you have not changed, Lord. Oh Lord, Lord, Lord. As long ago, as long ago, as long ago as that was, you're still the same. You have not changed. What can that mean? But my God is immutable. Immutable, you are beautiful. You never change. You remain. Seeing in infrared. This is Ken Ham with a passion for sharing God's word and the gospel with the world. All this week we've been looking at incredible sixth senses God has given various creatures. Today we're looking at pit organs. These organs are found in certain snakes and they allow snakes to sense infrared. This infrared is a type of light created by heat. Pit organs are so precise they can detect variations of just a fraction of a degree. These snakes are even able to filter out background infrared coming from the environment so they can just focus on finding dinner. This complex ability didn't just evolve. It was created by God, but snakes didn't use it to find mice and rabbits in the original very good creation. It's a result of the fall. Want to know more about creation? Visit AnswersRadio.com and enjoy nature and more when you check out our streaming service Answers TV or visit AnswersRadio.com. Objection number one. Men wrote the Bible. That's obviously true. But isn't that true of everything you read? 
from the New York Times to a college textbook, the fact that the Bible was written by men is not an automatic disqualifier of its truthfulness. Really, we've got to know. Were those men telling the truth? To answer that, we've got to ask a follow-up question. Would men write something they knew would get them killed? And they did. 11 out of 12 of Jesus' disciples were put to death for their beliefs. And the 12 died in exile. None of them recanted a single word that they wrote about Jesus' claims of divinity or his bodily resurrection. In fact, by holding fast their witness, they gained only poverty, exclusion, and death. So ask yourself, if the disciples were lying, why would they let themselves be murdered for something they knew wasn't true? The answer is, they knew it to be true, and they sought to tell everyone they knew, despite the terminal consequences. Objection number two, the Bible has mistakes. The truth is, the manuscript of the Bible does have apparent errors, but they are just that, apparent. Most of these mistakes are just modest spelling errors or variants, like the difference between theater and citre. I really don't know if I said that right. But what we don't see is major contradiction between copies of the text, like Jesus claiming to be God in one manuscript, but in another he doesn't. And we can clearly see these slips of the pen because we have so many copies of the original text to compare them to. We know what the original said. But that leads us to our final objection. Objection number three. The Bible is really, really old. Yes, it is. But so is Julius Caesar's Gaelic Wars. Interestingly, Caesar's Gaelic Wars has ten manuscripts that were written 1,000 years after the life of Julius Caesar. The Bible, on the other hand, has over 6,000 manuscripts of the New Testament that we can trace back to being written within decades of the life of Jesus. But no one ever questioned the truthfulness of Caesar's Gaelic Wars. You've got to ask, why is that? So, knowing the authors died attesting to the truthfulness of the Bible, leaving behind thousands of nearly identical copies, save a few misspellings, it's clear this book is what it claims to be. The Word of God. What's up, guys? Thanks for watching. Hope you enjoyed that. Next week, we've got more content coming at you, so make sure you subscribe. That's from Wretched, and that's uh, three objections quickly debunked. And this is me and Control here on Trippy Tall Radio. Now we got from this is from Lady Waters. Have you heard of the Ten Commandments? Yes. Have you kept them or broken them? I've broken them. Which ones have you broken? All of them. Really? You've murdered somebody? Yes. So you're saying if I change and I repent, I'll be okay? Maybe in the afterlife that I think that when you do pass away, probably God gives you an opportunity to be somebody else. Like a bird, dog, uh, caterpillar. Uh, Another human being? Maybe, maybe not. I guess you could only, from what I probably think and I want to say, uh, you only get that one chance. Okay. Now, let me just tell you what you said to me. Yeah. You've used the word probably a couple of times, maybe once, and I guess. Yeah. Shouldn't you find out the truth? You can't. If you're going to jump out of a plane and say, I probably need a parachute, yeah. well, maybe, uh, I guess. <laughs> This is serious business. This yeah. is your eternity. So you want to find the truth. Yeah, you do. You do. So 
What do you think of what the Bible says? I've never read the Bible. It's the world's biggest seller of all time. Yeah, yeah, but I've never read the Bible. Let me give you a synopsis of what the Bible says. Old Testament, God promised to destroy man's greatest enemy, death, and the New Testament tells us how he did it. Did you know that? No. Yeah, it tells you how death can be nullified. Have you ever heard the saying, Oh, death, where is your sting? No. Yeah, it's from the Bible. It actually says Jesus Christ has abolished death. Did you know that? No. Which is a weird thing to say because everyone still dies. So how could Jesus Christ abolish death? All right. Are you afraid of death? No. Everybody is. No. You're not afraid? No. Why not? I mean, you know, people come and go. That's the way life is. Yeah, but if you if you were lined up behind people that were stepping off a thousand foot cliff, you lean out and it's two hundred to go, and then there's a hundred, and then there's ten. Wouldn't you say, huh, "Any way I can get out of this line?" Because you seem like you're accepting the fact you're going to die, and you're not going to do anything about it if you accept it. No, no, of course. You're just going to wait for your turn. Yeah. When is it? Uh, whenever it's. I mean, every, everybody's. Uh, it's uh, destined, you know what I mean? It's destined to be. Like. You can't do anything about it? No, I can't. So if you're on a highway and there's an 18-wheeler heading for it 60 miles an hour, you wouldn't bother to get out of the road. You'd just say, oh, it's destined. I mean, come on, that's that's different, though. No, it's not. There's a vehicle, 18-wheeler called Death, with your name on it. <laughs> you should be saying, how can I get out of the way? Because there is a way you can get out of the way. Did you know that? Well, yeah, you can move, of course. Yeah, well, you can move away from death. I don't just mean the 18-wheeler, I mean death itself. Yeah. The grim reaper that's going to reap you and rip your family from you. Man, don't you love your family? Of course. And there's something in you that says, I don't want to die, I want to live. Yes, yeah. It's God-given. That's your will to live, so I want you to listen to it. And don't say, there's nothing I can do about it. Say, I wonder if there's something that can be done about it. Let me tell you what the Bible says causes death. Do you know what causes death? No. Wages. Death is wages. The Bible says the wages of sin is death. Death is so serious, God's going to pay you in death for your sins. It's like a judge in a court of law has a criminal in front of him who's committed rape and then killed the three girls that he raped. Slit their throats. The judge says to him, you've earned the death sentence. This is your wages. This is what's due to you. And sin is so serious to God... He's given us the death sentence. We're on death row. Capital punishment. The soul that sins, it shall die. Do you think you're worthy of the death sentence? No. The sin's that bad that God should put you to death? No. Of course not. You know why you believe that? Because you're judging yourself by man's standard, which we all do. God's standard is perfection and holiness. So let's look at the Ten Commandments. And see how you do. Have you ever seen those speedometers on the side of the road? They're large, and they tell you how fast you're going? Yeah. You know why they do that? Well, yeah, to have order. Yeah, they have order, but they want to tell you how much you're transgressing the law so you'll slow down. So I'm going to give you a speedometer. It's the Ten Commandments. Do you think you've kept the Ten Commandments? I've broken them. Which ones have you broken? All of them. Really? Yeah. You've murdered somebody? Yes. Okay, we'll go through them. Is God first in your life? Do you love God with heart, mind, soul, and strength? Of course. Okay. Second is you not make yourself a graven image. That means make sure your concept of God is correct. Go to the third. Have you ever used God's name in vain? All the time. Okay. Would you use your mother's name as a cuss word? Uh, I say son of a... Yeah. Does that count? Yes, it does. <laughs> calling, your, calling your mother a dog <laughs> is not honoring... So let's break, in the, let's break in the fifth commandment. 
honor your father and mother. But yeah, if you use your mother's name as a cuss word, you'd be terribly disrespecting her. To substitute your mother's name for a filth word of expressed disgust, it would be a horrible thing to do. But you've taken the name of the God that gave you life, that gave you children, that gave you eyes to see with, ears to hear with, taste buds to enjoy good food. He lavished his kindness upon you, and you took his holy name and used it in the place of a filth word to express disgust. That's called blasphemy. So serious, it's punishable by death. So I'm going to go back to the first question I asked you. I asked you if you love God with heart, mind, soul, and strength. You said yes. But it's evident you don't because you've used his name as a cuss word. Right. So, go to the fourth. Fourth question. Jesus said, if you look at a woman and lust for her, you commit adultery with her in your heart. Have you ever looked at a woman with lust? No. You've never looked at a woman with sexual desire? I was always interested in just money, making money. Do you have sex before marriage? Of course. you look with lust at your girlfriend? Uh, it was just it had to be, you know what I mean? It's like we were just young, I guess. So, Robert, I'm not judging you. You've just told me you're a lying, thieving, blasphemous, fornicating, adulterer at heart, and you have to face God on judgment day. Don't forget murder. And murder. Oh, dear, I can there. Are you serious about that? Oh, the, yes, I am. Well, so if God judges you by the Ten Commandments on Judgment Day, you're going to be innocent or guilty? Guilty, of course. Heaven or hell? I would say hell. Now, does that concern you? No. Man, it horrifies me. Why? Robert, I love you. I care about you. I love you. I care about everybody else as well, but, I mean, stuff happens, you know what I mean? You're in terrible danger. I'd rather fall on the face of the sun than fall into the hands of the living God. So, man, think about this. This is serious. You can, you, can, you can keep your wife and kids if you get right with God. You can have them for eternity. You can lead them into, into the knowledge of everlasting life. But at the moment, you're the blind leading the blind. So yeah, this, yeah. this just doesn't, this isn't just you I'm talking to. This is your pre- precious family. Yeah. Now tell me, what did God do for guilty sinners so we wouldn't have to go to hell? Do you know? No. Give up his life? Jesus died on the cross. Yeah. Do you remember his last words on the cross? No. It is finished. It is finished, that's what he said? Is it, yeah, it's it finished. You're saying the debt has been paid. He came to suffer for sin. The debt has been paid. You and I broke God's law, the Ten Commandments. Jesus paid the fine on the cross. That's why he said it is finished. Yeah. If you're in court, someone pays your fine. A judge can let you go and do that which is right and just. He can say, Robert, there's a stack of speeding fines here. This is deadly serious, but someone's paid him. You're free to go, and he can do that which is right and legal. And God can legally let you go. He can let you live forever, legally, because Jesus paid the fine in full. He can take the death sentence off you because he's rich in mercy and kind, despite our sins. And then Jesus rose from the dead after he suffered for us. And then the Bible says, whoever repents and trusts alone in him, God will grant everlasting life as a free gift. You don't have to get religious. You can't earn it. Eternal life is a free gift of God. Ever heard the song Amazing Grace? Yes. Grace means God's unmerited favor. Amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. The minute you repent and trust Christ, God will open the eyes of your understanding. You'll come out of darkness into light, out of death into life. He'll make you a brand new person on the inside so that you love God and so that you love righteousness. So you're saying if I change and I repent, I'll be okay? You put your faith in Jesus, and you've got God's promise. You'll forgive every secret sin you've ever committed. We'll see. We'll see. I'm going to do that, and we'll see. Can I pray with you? Oh, yes, of course. Father, I pray for Robert that this day he'll think seriously about his sins and find a place of genuine sorrow, that he'll understand what happened on that cross and 
put his faith in Jesus as Lord and Savior and pass from death to life because of your kindness. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. I'm going to give you some literature that will help you. Hey, Robert, thank you for listening to me, and thank you for your honesty. I really appreciate it. Thank you. You're welcome. That was Ray Comfort from Living Waters website called Ray Comfort Shares the Gospel with the Murder. And Living Waters spelled L-I-V-I-N-G-W-A-T-E-R-S. Living Waters, check out their website, livingwaters.com, too. But that was from their YouTube channel, so check that out. And I'm going to do for you is I'm going to play a song. All I want to do is praise your name From the rising of the sun to the going down of the same You are my God and all I want to do is praise your name I praise your name and this is dumb or
Get Social with Truth Be Told Radio. Check us out on our Facebook like page at Truth Be Told Radio. You can find our website at truthbetoldradio.com. That is T-R-U-T-H-B-E-T-O-L-D-R-A-D-I-O dot C-O-M. Truthbetoldradio.com. Do you have any questions, suggestions, comments, or want to tell us anything? Send those emails to truthbetoldradioshow at gmail.com. Remember, by sending us your email, you give us permission to read it on the air. So write us at truthbetoldradioshow at gmail.com. If you'd like to read blogs, we've got you covered. Check out ours at truthbetoldradio.blogspot.com. That's truthbetoldradio.blogspot.com. Also, follow us on Twitter as Truth, the letter B, then Told Radio. That is T-R-U-T-H-B-T-O-L-D-R-A-D-I-O. Once again, that is Truth, the letter B only, not B-E, Told Radio. This is due to the restraints for Twitter's username link. Finally, to learn the testimony of Melissa Canchoa, the hostess of Truth Be Told Radio, see smilesandstuff.com. That's S-M-I-L-E-S-A-N-D-S-T-U-F-F dot C-O-M. Smilesandstuff.com. So stay social with us, and thanks for listening to Truth Be Told Radio. We got for Truth Be Told Radio. Can I go out with Nancy and friends and the BRBLE? Bye for now. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. 
Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at chumpacasino.com. Welcome to the family. VGW Group, no purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. See terms and conditions, 18 plus.